You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 152 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. The fourth year of this podcast is coming to an end. Time does fly. Or does it? It can be argued that there is no such thing as time. That we live in one big constant present moment. But what about age and aging? You know, things seem to grow old. So how can there be no such thing as time? Well, I'm sure you know how they make cartoons. They draw a lot of drawings, each one just a snapshot of a moment in time. But put together and viewed quickly creates the impression that things are going forward. But it is only hundreds of still moments that creates this illusion of time and progress. So maybe God is some intergalactic Walt Disney. And we're living in his magic kingdom. You know, this episode is titled The Magic of Science. And I don't really want to focus on the concept of time. Rather, I want to bring up a few points on why I think science and magic have a lot of things in common. This won't be a very lengthy episode, but hopefully you will enjoy it nonetheless. Sometimes compact content is better than a lot of empty filler stuff, right? (laughs) Usually these days there are two major groups. One group is the magical paranormal religious group that believes in a lot of hippie mumbo-jumbo woo-woo. The other group is the rational, logical, evidence-based group that have science as their religion. But I have for a long time now begun to notice that these two opposites have a lot more in common than what might seem at first glance. The more the scientific community discovers about the origins of life, the structures of the universe and reality, quantum theory and all that, the more it is beginning to sound like hippie mumbo-jumbo-woo-woo, in my opinion. But before I continue, let's listen to scientist Rupert Sheldrake talk briefly about what he calls the science delusion. Since the 19th century, the so-called scientific worldview has been dominated by the philosophy of materialism, uh, the doctrine that the only reality is matter or physical reality. In my book, The uh, Science Delusion, um, what I do is take the 10 basic dogmas of materialism and turn them into questions. Usually, these dogmas are simply taken for granted. Uh, People think that they're simply the truth. Most materialists don't realize that their belief system is a belief system. They think other people have belief systems, but they know the truth. The first dogma is that nature is mechanical, machine-like. The only Valid metaphor for looking at nature is the machine. The universe is a machine, animals are machines, plants are machines, we are machines. Um, According to Richard Dawkins, uh, we are lumbering robots. 
The second dogma is that matter is unconscious. The whole universe is made of matter, and matter is unconscious. The stars, the planets, the entire universe has come into being completely without consciousness. And then on this earth, at some stage in the past, for reasons utterly unknown, uh, the light bulb of consciousness was switched on in human brains, maybe in animal brains, but the rest of the universe is totally unconscious. The third dogma is that the laws of nature are fixed. Um, all the laws of nature were established at the moment of the Big Bang exactly as they are today. And uh, they're rather like a kind of cosmic Napoleonic code uh, that was fixed right from the outset uh, and will remain the same forever. The fourth dogma is that the total amount of matter and energy is always the same, except at the moment of the Big Bang when all the matter and energy suddenly appeared. The fifth dogma is that nature is purposeless. The sixth dogma is that biological inheritance is material. Dogma seven is that memories are stored materially inside your brains. Dogma eight is that your mind is nothing but the activity of your brain. Your mind is inside your head. Dogma nine is a consequence of dogma eight. It says that psychic phenomena like telepathy uh, are illusory. They may appear to happen, but they can't really happen because they're impossible. Your mind is totally confined to the inside of your head, so it can't possibly have any effects at a distance. And dogma 10 is that mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. Now, these 10 dogmas constitute the default worldview, uh, which is the standard orthodoxy of politics, business, government, and education. All of us have been brought up within that framework of thought. What I find very interesting is that there is a lot of paranormal stuff that goes on behind the scenes of the scientific community that leads to amazing discoveries. Nikola Tesla is one of the most famous scientists that is viewed as both a scientist and in a way as a magician, especially in the times he lived. And many of the great scientists that lived before what we call the modern age believed in God, uh, unlike all these atheist scientists of today, like Richard Dawkins. But my uh, model theory or thoughts about this goes deeper than that. So let's look a bit closer and listen to a short clip of Terence McKenna regarding what is considered the birth of the modern rational scientific revolution, the ideas of Descartes. You know the I think therefore I am guy? René Descartes was a 19-year-old, basically 'er ne'er-do-well, and he decided that he would go wenching and soldiering across Europe, which was a thing that young men of certain class did. And in the, on the evening of, uh, now there's a lot of arm wrestling about this, but let's just say the 17th of August, 1619, this army made camp near the little town of Ulm in southern Germany, which synchronicity freaks pay attention. Ulm will later be the birthplace of Albert Einstein. Worth noting. But that night, Descartes, in the barracks, uh, had a dream. And an angel appeared 
to him. And the angel said, uh, the conquest of nature is to be achieved through number and measurement. And he was thunderstruck. He took that angelic revelation and turned it into modern science. Modern science was founded by an angel. You know, they don't tell you this at MIT. Uh, you know, it, it's astonishing uh, how, how uh, things which claim roots in rationalism are actually among some of the most irrational productions uh, in the historical continuum. Socrates had a demon, D-E-A-M-O-N. It was a little voice. It told it was his crap detector. It told him the difference between profound philosophical thinking and bullpucky. And uh, so, you know, the edifice of Western thinking built on Platonism owes its debt to an invisible agency speaking from hyperspace. So does modern science a la Descartes. How much more of this? I mean, we don't care if artists talk to angels because we've our definition of them is that they're screwballs. <laughs> but to, uh, uh, to believe that an, uh, an enterprise like modern science has to trace its way back to the same ecstatic roots is, I think, uh, very suggestive that the world is stranger than we can suppose and that we need to open these channels of communication to these invisible worlds. Probably the next great paradigm shift will be enunciated by a mushroom, an angel, an elf, an alien, what have you. So here is one example of a whole movement that is concerned with the rational, but is actually founded on some ideas given by an angel in a dream. But this is not the first instance in history of this, and probably not the last. So let's get back to Terence McKenna again when he tells the story of the Darwin-Wallace theory of evolution. Another example, one that's dear to my heart, is, uh, is Alfred Russell Wallace, who was a poor surveyor from Devon, who was out uh, uh, collecting insects in Indonesia in the last century, and he got a fever on the island of Ternate, malaria. And in the midst of this fever... He understood the solution to the great problem of 19th century biology, which was called the problem of the species. He saw how random mutation and natural selective forces could produce biological diversity. And when he came down from this thing, and this was again an angelic deliverance in the height of this fever, he... Uh, he couldn't figure out what to do with it, so he wrote a letter to the greatest scientist of the age, which was Charles Darwin, in London. And when, Lo and when Darwin opened this letter, you know, he just said, holy shit, you know, this guy has scooped me. Twenty years I've been working on the origins. Here it is in four paragraphs. Who is this guy? Well, so then it became the Darwin-Wallace theory of evolution for its first 50 years and then Wallace dropped out of the picture because he disgraced himself by an interest in spiritualism but uh, uh, you can understand why uh, if the guy got the original vision from an angel I think this is utterly fascinating here is an angel again is it perhaps the same angel that visited uh, Muhammad in the cave and dictated the Quran to him 
Is it the same angel or entity that met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments? Hard to say until I meet this individual personally. Perhaps both Muhammad and Moses were tripping on DMT, who knows. And does it matter if they did? Not to me. Regardless, in both these examples that Terence gives, the insight is given by an angel that seems to not be a choice on the part of the receiver. I mean, they didn't ask for it. But there are cases when the scientist himself uses so-called woo-woo techniques to get answers. In my two-part episode with Dr. Bruce Damer, episode 125 and 126, he mentions Albert Einstein using imagination to reach insight. And since Bruce is a scientist himself, he talks a bit about trying this technique himself. Here, here's a metaphor that I, I use that I, I go into these dream states now and then uh, to do thought experiments. And this is a, a fairly standard tradition, certainly in the arts, you know, and in great writing, but also in science. You know, uh, Albert Einstein, when he was 16, he went into this, what he called thought experiment where he, be, he, be, he was running alongside a beam of light. And then he just sort of let himself go and let the thought experiment or the dream or the vision show him things. And that gave him special relativity. You know, Newton worked through dreams, so did Descartes, you know. So in my, in my dream, I asked the system or whatever I was speaking to, I, I presented the the current state of our origin of life model is cycling protocells going in and out of wet, dry, wet, dry, and then clumping together, saying, here's the state of the art so far. I got a pat on my head, and the the entity or whatever it was that was in the dream said, let me now show you how it really worked. And I, I, I basically sort of lay back, because you, you do this in these states, you're getting this delivered thing. And suddenly, my my ring of protocells, my flowing sea of protocells, was rotated 90 degrees, where I was now seeing them sliced through, where they were just popping in and out of existence instead of flowing sideways. They were sort of coming into the field and disappearing. And then suddenly, there was a mesh, a square mesh, placed down upon these little bubbles that had their polymers in them. And I thought, oh no, they've been all squished by this mesh. No, there was one little bubble, one little protocell made its way up through a, a square in the mesh and started to reproduce and populate across the mesh. And then suddenly there was another mesh that slammed down on that population. And another one came up through that mesh. And then the whole system was turned on its side again. I could see trillions of these meshes, and I could see things climbing through them. And then the voice in the dream said, what do you see? I said, well, I see a struggle, an upward struggle of some members that go up, and they then they give what they have to the next level, and then they are sacrificed themselves. And then they, they're no longer there, but the offspring or the far offspring move to the next level, and it's about striving. And then I got my shirt collar grabbed by this entity in the dream and said, you listen and you listen good. What you are seeing is the process I call evolution. This is what I use to make you. 
but in you have gotten your minds, your monkey minds, fixated on this term, survival of the fittest. And it is destroying uh, your civilization and it's destroying our world. Get over it. It's about sacrifice and giving to the community at the next level. So I sort of fell back at that point and uh, that was the message given in the thought experiment. Like I mentioned, go to episode 125 and 126 if you want to hear more of Dr. Bruce Damer. So what about psychedelics? Can those be used to reach some scientific insight? Well, apparently so. Let's listen to author Graham Hancock talk about one of the people who discovered DNA. Uh, In the early 1950s, when Francis Crick uh, discovered the double helix structure of DNA, he regularly consumed LSD. Uh, LSD at that time was completely legal, and Crick felt that it enhanced his mental and creative powers. He took low doses of LSD virtually every week, and he admitted that it was under the influence of LSD in a visionary state that he first saw the double helix form, Uh, and it is that vision that enabled him to crack the code of DNA, and it's on the basis of that vision that he won the Nobel Prize. And he, in fact, is one amongst many scientists who have received vital information of a scientific nature uh, in altered states of consciousness. So, So that's the first remarkable thing about Crick, the Nobel Prize winner, the ultimate mainstream scientist that Crick saw the structure of DNA, the double helix structure, under the influence of LSD. Apparently, psychedelics is uh, used on more than one occasion by those nerds over there in Silicon Valley. Perhaps that's why we're getting all these uh, cool devices these days. And there has been an increase in scientists going down to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca. So in conclusion, I think it is equally valid to embrace the paranormal, which Sheldrake calls normal, as well as embracing the rational and logical, which, when looked at it a bit closer, is both flaky and full of woo-woo. To paraphrase Einstein, it's all relative. As a closing bit, I would like to play this clip when Graham Hancock asks if Richard Dawkins would ever consider doing ayahuasca. Um, Dr. Dawkins, uh, many traditional hunter-gatherer cultures believe there are other realities, spirit worlds and so on and so forth, and concrete techniques such as the use of psychoactive plants to access them. For example, the visionary brew ayahuasca, used for thousands of years by indigenous cultures throughout the Amazon basin. As a scientist, have you ever seriously engaged such techniques to have first-hand experience of what they're talking about? and perhaps even to challenge your own concept of what is real. If not, would you consider doing so? And when would you be ready to begin? (laughs) If you would not consider doing so, then please explain why not. I would be curious, I must confess. I mean, I I have um, read some of the accounts of of drug-induced trances and things. Uh, There's a lovely one in Redmond O'Hanlon's book about... um, going up the Amazon, which you may have read. Have you read Mandahamad? Yes. Um, and he uh, visits the Yanomamo tribe, who are sometimes described as the fierce people. And they have a drug which they take by shooting it up the nostril with a, with a great long blowpipe. 
and uh, I think he, he tries that. Um, I would be very curious, I must say, to take uh, perhaps not that drug, but something like LSD or mescaline, um, as Aldous Huxley describes in The Doors of Perception. Um, he felt when taking mescaline that his eyes were opened, the doors of perception were cleansed, and he saw things that were um, in some strange way beyond reality. Um, I would be prepared to do that under proper medical supervision if I were absolutely convinced that it would do me no lasting harm. Uh, and I would actually like to, to do it. Um, I did once take part in an experiment in Canada uh, where a neurobiologist had developed a technique of passing magnetic fields through the brain um, using a modified helmet, a motorcycle helmet, with magnetic um, coils. And in about 80% of subjects, this does induce some sort of trance-like state, some sort of feeling of uh, oneness with the universe, in some cases, in people who, are, uh, who have a religious faith. It tends to induce visions uh, of whatever particular religion they've been brought up with, um, Virgin Marys if they're Catholic, and so on. Um, I did this as an experiment. Um, I was taken by the BBC as an experimental subject. Um, unfortunately, I turned out to be one of the 20% uh, who were completely unaffected by, um, by this technique, to much to my regret. Um, I was not expecting to see any angels or Virgin Marys. I was expecting and hoping to have some sort of feeling of transcendent wonder. Uh, and it's my loss that I didn't. Um, the control in that experiment was a local vicar uh, who um, they thought would be an interesting control. Um, and he actually also claimed that it had no effect. But his EEG record, which um, the scientist, uh, Dr. Michael Persinger, was monitoring, um, showed that actually he was uh, a prime subject, one of the 80%. Uh, and he, the, Dr. Persinger suspected that he wasn't telling the truth when he said that he didn't have any, any uh, trance-like state. Uh, surprisingly, I wouldn't have thought he would have wanted to to dissemble on that. Um, I showed the classic EG pattern of somebody who, um, who, who was not going, to be, well, not going to be a subject. So I would like to undergo some such experience. Um, I think it very unlikely that, it, that whatever happened to me, I would in interpret it as indicating anything supernatural. Um, I would, on the contrary, interpret it as a manifestation of what a wonderful thing the brain is and how um, the brain can see and can experience even more things under the right kinds of chemical um, stimulation. Or other things can do it, like meditation or, um, or, or starvation, fat, fasting. <laughs> I think it's, it's pretty funny that uh, Dawkins is so sure of what he would think and feel when he drinks ayahuasca. And perhaps he is correct in how he would react to the experience. But having had the experience, I am suspicious of that statement. And I think that he will probably be quite surprised. But we don't know until he does it. So we'll have to wait and see.
Now here is the song Eggman by the Funky Chill Orchestra from their album Greatest Hits. Although as far as I know, they never really had one. Freedom is in the mind. Eggman! 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 